If you have your booklets, uh, booklets on what we believe, pages 35 and 36 uh, in that booklet. Let's pray as we discuss God's truths together. Dear Father, I thank you. I thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to come here. To be able to come in a place and gather with fellow believers in your Son, Jesus. I thank you for the unity that exists in this room. I pray that you teach us through your word, help us understand you more deeply, and help us to come away comforted by your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start with a conversation between uh, two politicians. Conversation between two politicians. I am going to call them Politician 1 and Politician 2 to keep their names a secret. Some of you might be aware of this conversation already, though. Politician number one says this, Let me get to the issue. This has bothered me and has bothered many people. And that is the piece that I referred to that you wrote for the publication called The Resurgent. You wrote, Muslims do not simply have deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, His Son, and they stand condemned. Do you believe that statement is Islamophobic? Politician number two, absolutely not, Senator. I am a Christian, and I believe in a Christian set of principles based on my faith. That post, as I stated in the questionnaire to this committee, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation and, politician number one, interrupting, I apologize, forgive me, we just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view? Politician 2, again, Senator, I'm a Christian, and I wrote that piece in accordance to the statement of faith at Wheaton College. Politician number 1, I understand that. I don't know how many people, how many Muslims there are in America, maybe a couple million. Are you suggesting that all those people stand condemned? What about Jews? Do they stand condemned too? Politician number 2, Senator, I am a Christian. Politician number one raising his voice, now shouting, I understand that you're a Christian, but this country is made of people who are not just, I understand that Christianity is a majority religion, but there are other people of different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Politician number two, thank you for probing on that question as a Christian I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and they're worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. Politician number one, you think your statement that you put into that publication that they do not know God because they rejected Jesus, His Son, they stand condemned? Do you think that's respectful of other religions? Politician number two, Senator, I wrote that post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly 
in regard to the centrality of Jesus Christ and salvation. Politician number one, I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee is, not, is really not someone who this country is supposed to be about. you're thinking that this conversation is simply made up for my introduction, you'd be wrong. This is a manuscript of an actual conversation that took place earlier this month. Again, I was purposeful in leaving out the names, but if you'd like them, I can give it to you after the service. Some people are kind of wondering the whole time. Don't Google it on your phone. I, I, can, I, can, I can give it to you. But we need to understand that the doctrine we are talking about today is not only offensive to the world that we live in, it's hated. This is a doctrine that many have caved on. And in doing so, they have turned Christianity into, as one theologian put it, a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Christianity, to be sure, touches on more than just heaven and hell, saved and unsaved. But it doesn't exist without these. To continue to march with faithfulness to the Scriptures, we must understand that we cannot part with this doctrine. So let's turn to our doctrinal statement and read through it together. And from here, we're going to look at three biblical truths that it communicates. Three biblical truths that stand against this conversation that we began with. Let's read through it together. We believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked. That such only as through faith are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of our God are truly righteous in His esteem. While all such as continue in Him Penitence and unbelief are in his sight wicked and under the curse. And this distinction holds among men both in and after death. And the everlasting felicity of the saved and the everlasting conscious suffering of the lost. If your Bible is turned to Malachi 3.18, it's also in your biblical proofs. Let's read it together. The more, the once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. The once more you shall see the distinction. The word distinction is the translation that we have in your booklet, the ESV, but other translation might say difference so that you can discern between, that there is a difference, you'll be able to see it, be able to notice it. So the first truth that we come to in our doctrinal statement, I believe the biblical truth that we come to is this. There is a difference between the righteous and the wicked. There is a difference. The difference is a fact, a biblical fact. Malachi 3 is clear. There's a distinction Romans 6, 17 to 18 helps us understand the difference a little bit more as it talks about the core desires and the allegiances. Romans 6, 17 through 18, again in, in your 
booklet. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching of which you were committed. And, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Saying, you were once slaves of sin, now you're something else entirely. You're slaves of righteousness. There's a clear difference between the two. And so our doctrinal statement gives two key words. Two key words. It says the radical and essential difference. So let's just kind of define these as far as they can be defined with dictionary definitions. The first, radical, of or relating to the origin. Of or relating to the origin. And essential, of or relating to or constituting essence. Talking about the origin, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the second point. This idea of this essential difference. It's not small. It's not insignificant. It's essential. Let me illustrate it. There's not a radical and essential difference between a blue jay and a robin. There is a radical and essential difference between a mechanical pencil and the Incredible Hulk. But do we understand this? I illustrated this another way with students. Sometimes we view our new life in Christ as nothing more than a respawn. Some of you might not what is the term respawn? In video games, if you die, your character dies in a video game, they come back to life and they respawn. And so you're able to have another life, and you're able to try to beat the level or whatever you're trying to accomplish, but you have the, the same guy again, and he's able to do, try to attempt the same feat. Well, sometimes you have the same exact guy, and sometimes he actually loses different qualities so that you try it again, but harder. Or he lost certain things that you picked up around, along the way. That's not what it means to be reborn, but sometimes that's what we think. To be reborn is to be radically different. It's to be essentially different. It's what Scripture calls your new creation. The old is gone. 2 Corinthians 5.17 There's an essential difference between the righteous and the wicked. Well, Scripture applies this several ways for us. One is, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership does the righteous have with lawlessness or fellowship? Light with darkness, 2 Corinthians 6.14. This is talking about the Old Testament law of joining together two different kinds of livestock and they walking and accomplishing something together. But it's talking directly here about having deep unity with those who are not in Christ. We should be loving everyone we have the opportunity to, and we should build many relationships with those that don't know Jesus. But we also must answer the question, where are our deepest relationships found in a specific way? Where are our deepest relationships found? I'd imagine if I were to pull this room, many of you, if not most of you, could share a story. A story of those who know Christ, dating or become married to those that don't know Christ, and it doesn't end well. Or there's, there's heartache and there's, there's pain in the midst of it. 
is two competing allegiances, one to Jesus and one not to Jesus, to self. How it's wreaked havoc on relationships. But I would press this into each of our life situations. Who is your closest friend? And what is the most important thing you share in common with that person? We discussed that there's a difference between the righteous and the wicked. It naturally leads to the why question. Why is there such a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked? What's the reason for it? Is it up to us? Or is something else or someone else involved? And so that leads us to the second truth. The second truth. The reason for the difference is not us, it's God. For us to understand the reason, we must be aware of the attributes. The attributes of righteousness not only stand in sharp contrast with the attributes of the wicked, they reveal something to us. They reveal that this contrast cannot be produced by human effort. This contrast is a result of supernatural work. We discussed this work before. I hinted at it earlier. This work of new birth, of regeneration. Becoming a new creation in Jesus. And so we see the attributes of the righteous. Let's read in our doctrinal statement. That such as through faith are justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus. So the first attribute is they're justified or the declared righteous. Those that are righteous are those that are declared righteous. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not depending on them. It's not something they've done, but it's something that Jesus has done. He's the foundation for their righteousness. What else does it say? They're sanctified by the Spirit of God. Sanctified, they're being made more like Jesus. How? By the Spirit of God, not by themselves. Third, they're truly righteous. These are the ones that are seen as truly righteous. How are they truly righteous? They're righteous in one sense because they're declared righteous. This is something that we call forensic righteousness. But there's also a sense in which they're really made righteous. Reformation slogan was simple justus et peccator. Simul, simultaneously, justus, just, et and peccator, sinner. At the same time, you're just and you're a sinner. All who belong to Jesus, at the same time, Jesus looks at God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus, and you're seen as righteous and beautiful and holy. But at the same time, each of us sin. Well, God not only is, is washing that sin away in this life, he's not only making us more holy in this life, there will be one day we will be perfectly holy in every single way. We'll be washed away with every speck of sin that remains in our life. It will be truly righteous. That's the future hope for all who belong to Jesus. And we also have the attributes of the wicked. 
the attributes of the wicked. They continue in their impenitence. In other words, there's no feeling of regret for their sins. They're unrepentant. So that idea that they're already walking in sin. They're already walking in unrighteousness and wickedness. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 17. Incredible verse. John 3, verse 17. We know verse 16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you don't know that verse, or if you've never memorized it, memorize that one. But verse 17, the one that follows it up, what does it say? For God did not send His world into the world to condemn the world, but nor the world might be saved through Him. Verse 18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the Son of God. So how are we justified? Belief. Romans 1.17 says the righteous shall live by faith. It's by faith. But those who are wicked, those who do not believe in Jesus, they're already condemned. They're already walking in sin. There's already this heart of unrepentance that just exists. Romans 1 takes it a step further. It says there's this hatred of God. There's this, there's this rejecting of what they do see, even in nature. And instead they turn in on themselves and worship themselves when they should be worshiping the God that creation points to. So they continue in this unrepentance. They continue... continue in their unbelief. 1 John 5.19 in our, in our booklets. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If you're not from God, you're lying in the power of the evil one. You are unregenerate. You are wicked, the Bible says. Genesis 3.10 Those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the law, by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If you think you can earn your own salvation, if you think you can pull yourself up out of this pit from wicked to righteous, you're only going to further condemn yourself. Because if you try to do one, you better do them all because that's God's standard. Romans 7, 6 says the law holds them captive. Romans 6, 23 says sin has brought death to them. And Romans 6, 16 uses this imagery again of this slavery to sin. If we're tempted to think that it's up to us to make ourselves righteous, I hope that we can understand that trying to keep the law in our own power is like trying to fly to the moon by jumping on a trampoline. It's not going to work. We have no shot. There needs to be something else. There needs to be someone else. 
And that's only through faith in Jesus. It's only by abandoning hope in ourselves and trusting in Him that we are called righteous. When the true label that should be placed on our foreheads is wicked. We need to understand that what separates the righteous from the wicked is not something that you have done, that I have done, but something that God has done for you in Jesus. To put it in another way, do we take Jesus seriously enough to believe that there is an essential difference between those who have personally encountered him through faith and those who have not? That it changes someone. Can't we see it in the Gospel of Luke as we're, as we're hearing stories about people who've come into contact with Jesus? They walk away changed. Everything's different. And how shouldn't we think it's the same with us who have come into a personal contact with Jesus through the Holy Spirit? Oh, they lowered that man in hoping that Jesus would do something. Laying there. Oh, the Bible points a much more depressing picture of us. It doesn't say that we were paralyzed. It says that we were dead. And yet God brings new life through Jesus. And He declares us righteous. A title that we do not deserve. Oh, but by His grace. But are we living in light of this difference? Remember, the Bible doesn't say, be salt and light. It says, you are salt and light. It says, you're different. Be who you are. You're righteous. And God sees you for not only what He declares you as, but what you're becoming truly. And He's going to make sure that that happens. Still, for the Christians, it's easy for us to fall into one of two errors. One, the error of looking just like the world around us. Not understanding that there's a new label written on us. Not understanding that this is the life that we're called into. Living like we simply respond instead of that we were born again. But there's also another error. The second error might even be more deadly and cause more heartache and pain. The second error is the error of self-righteousness. Of pride in our own spirituality. This is the person who is more quick to say, I thank you that I'm not like them. Instead of, God, if you can save a wretch like me, I know there's hope for politician number one, too. Oh, for those of us who have been declared righteous, do not turn your nose up at the wicked, but fall on your knees for their salvation. Our God does great things. The difference exists. The difference is not because of us, but because of Jesus. Now we're going to turn to what that result, what the result of that difference will be. What is the result of those who are righteous because of Jesus and those who are left in their wickedness? What is the result for you if you are in Christ? Our third truth. The result of the difference is heaven, not hell. 
The result of the difference is heaven, not hell. Here's where we circle back to the opening illustration. The issue that the one man had trouble overcoming was that Christianity is explicit that some go to heaven and others go to hell. For him to say that some go to hell is paramount injustice. But, according to Scripture, the fact that some sinners go to heaven is unjust. For politician one... How can you say this is, huh, this is Islamophobic to say that they're not going to heaven? The Bible says it's an insult on the justice and goodness and holiness of God to say that any go to heaven. So how can it happen? Because the punishment was paid by Jesus. Because it's been paid for. It's been dealt. God can't turn a blind eye on sin, and He didn't. The evidence is the cross. You see, either Jesus paid for your sins on the cross, or you are paying for your sins for eternity. How do you know that your sins have been paid for? Because you've trusted in the work of Jesus on your behalf. Your hope's not in you, but it's in Him. There are a lot of people who call out what is called fire and brimstone preaching. Threatenings with hell for those who don't turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. But the truth is, preaching with heaven and hell on the line has really slowly trickled away. We alluded to it in the beginning. Doing away with the justice, with the wrath of God. And emphasizing instead simply the moral teachings of Scripture. This is the essence of liberal Christianity. As one theologian said, which is not Christianity at all, but an entirely different religion. To rip eternal destinations away from the faith is to rip apart the very fabric of Christianity. So let's look at this in our doctrinal statement. What does it say? The distinction holds among men both in and after death and the everlasting felicity of the saved and the everlasting conscience suffering of the lost. So the destinations of the righteous, everlasting felicity, everlasting happiness, joy, bliss. Think of Brooklyn who just got married and there's this new uh, marriage bliss and happiness and excitement. There's this excitement and joy for those who are in heaven. One side note on that, one thing that we talked about even with the students this morning. Encourage marriage bliss and marriage happiness. One of the most depressing things that a young married couple can face is just you wait. It just gets hard. It just gets tough. This won't last forever. Well, the same thing can happen even with us in our Christian faith. We come to Jesus and there's this happiness, there's this excitement. We know what awaits us. And then trials come and it's hard and it's difficult. And we need encouragement. 
We have a future hope that's worth pumping our fists over. Let's do it. Let's live in light of the eternal. But not only can we say that there's everlasting happiness, but also there's a return to the garden. There's a return to the garden. The garden of Eden, paradise, unity with God, love, fellowship, walking with Him. We're marching towards a better Eden. One that spreads the expanse of the globe. That we're able to enjoy the presence of God forever. And even more so, because Adam knew God as his creator, but you and I know God not only as our creator, but as the one who sent his son for us, our redeemer. Second, there's the destination of the wicked. The destination of the wicked. There's the everlasting conscious torment. Everlasting conscious torment. It's popular among Christians to say the worst part of hell is the absence of God. But I think this misses some important things. It's true that hell is the absence of God's loving and merciful presence, but God is omnipresent, and hell is no exception. Instead, hell is a place where God's justice is on full display. There's a popular teaching sometime back, and one that keeps kind of resurfacing, called annihilationism. This is the belief that people go to hell, they suffer for a bit, and then their souls are destroyed and there'll be no more. Part of the appeal of this belief is trying to understand how we can enjoy heavenly or this eternal felicity, knowing that there may be some, maybe even loved ones, who are in hell. So believe that they're not really suffering can bring a certain kind of comfort. But this teaching is dangerous on two accounts. First, it attacks the justice of God. And second, it attacks the clear teaching of Scripture. It attacks the justice of God because it is sinning against an eternal God. It deserves eternal punishment. Matthew 25, verses 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Same Greek word, eternal. You can't take the eternal life aspect and like that and not take the eternal punishment aspect. If one's temporary, both are temporary. Read a short section from a book called Everybody's a Theologian. says this, That which makes us most squeamish about the last judgment is the doctrine of hell. When I was in seminary, another student once asked our professor, John Gerstner, how we will be able to rejoice in heaven if we were to get there only to find some of our loved ones in hell. Dr. Gerstner replied that we will not be sad about that, but instead we will rejoice. For it will bring glory to God and vindicate His holiness. There was a collective gasp from the students. 
But as I reflected upon his words, I understood what he was trying to say. While we are in our mortal flesh, even though we have some affection for Christ, our basic affections are rooted in this world. We care more about the well-being of our family members and friends than about the vindication of the righteousness of God. But that will not be the case when we arrive in heaven in our glorified state. We will see God for His holiness, for His loveliness, for His goodness. And we will think to ourselves, how can anybody sin against Him? Oh, the punishment that it deserves to sin against a God who is so loving, who is so holy. So the question we need to ask ask ourselves is, do we take God's holiness seriously enough to believe hell is necessary? Do we take God's holiness seriously enough to believe hell is necessary? We need to stop and think about what that means for us today. How does this affect the way that we live, the way that we worship, to understand that you are deserving of hell and separation from the goodness of God, but that instead you got heavenly happiness is staggering. It's a cause for worship. To understand that there are many who, if they die tonight, will be heading to eternal punishment is the cause for something else. Evangelist D.L. Moody spent the evening of Sunday, October 8th, 1871, the way he spent many other Sunday nights, preaching. His text was Matthew 27, verse 22. His topic was, what shall we do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? On the surface, this was a night like many others. But Moody made a decision that was different and that diverged from his normal practice. Rather than concluding with an appeal for people to put their faith in Jesus, Moody said, I wish that you would take this text home and turn it over in your mind during the week. And the next Sabbath we will come to Calvary and the cross, and then we will decide what to do with Jesus. This decision to send people home to turn it over in their minds would hang over his, Moody's head for the rest of his ministry. As they sang their closing song, the fire alarm sounded. The great Chicago fire had broken out killing 300 people and leaving more than 10,000 homeless. This tragic event proved to be a turning point for Moody's ministry. He later said, I have never since dared to give an audience a week to think about their salvation. If they were lost, they might rise up in judgment against me. I have never seen a congregation, that congregation since. I will never meet those people until I see them in another world. But I want to tell you, of one lesson that I learned that night which I have never forgotten. And that is, when I preach Christ, press Christ upon the people, then and there, and try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I'd rather have my right hand cut off than to give an audience a week to decide what to do with Jesus. Have you forgotten the urgency of the gospel? It is important that we do not try to manipulate people into making a decision just to make a decision. This is something that we even talk about in the VBS training. But it's also important that we do not neglect opportunities to call people to put their trust in Jesus. The seed may fall on rocky soil. It may be snatched up. But don't prevent the seed from going out. 
vindicates the holiness of God that some can perish. But it pleases God to save sinners. Oh, how we long for God to be pleased in the salvation of sinners. And may He, by His grace, give us a small part of that work. The fact that there's a difference between the righteous and the wicked should bring discernment discernment as we live in a fallen world. The reason for the difference should humble us that we understand it's all of God's grace and nothing that we do. And the result of the difference should make us meditate on the holiness of God and His loving mercy towards us while also causing us to long for others to experience His saving grace. In the front of our booklets it says that theology should lead to doxology. What we mean by that is a proper understanding of who God is should lead to, lead to praise from our lips. It should stir praise within our souls. As we reflect on this truth, that there's a difference, and the difference has nothing to do with us, but all to do with the grace of God. That there is a difference in destination. It has nothing to do with us, but God's going to make sure that we see ourselves there. That we persevere because he's he's preserving us to the end. We also understand that this gospel is to freely go out to all as we pray that God calls sinners to himself. Oh, let's do that this week. That's glory in our salvation in what we've been given that we don't deserve. And let's share the good news with everyone we come in contact with. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you've declared us righteous when there's nothing in us that deserves such a declaration. I thank you for loving us, for preserving us, for giving us a destination that we can enjoy you forever. And God, I pray that you give us opportunities this week to share this good news with those who are around us. God, call them to yourself by your grace. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.